Hi, everybody. I'm Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Now, I've told you before that my wife and I spent a couple of months in Pakistan several years ago. Now, Pakistan is a whole different culture for sure, and hospitality is a big part of that culture. But how a person is hosted differs a little bit depending on the scenario. There was this one time when a friend of mine and I, we were driving out to a remote village to see some people. And as we were coming back in, my friend was like, hey, we need to stop and pay this guy a visit. He's kind of an important guy in the area. And it's important for us just to stop by and, and see him. So I was like, great. Yeah, I'm game for anything. So we pull up to the place and uh, the, the person at the gate greets us and takes us to a tent that's kind of outside of the main house and has us sit down on a bench in the tent. And then he goes inside and he gets the owner of the house and that guy comes out and he greets us, says hi, I meet him for the first time, he knew my friend, couple of pleasantries, blah, blah, blah. He has a sit down and then he goes inside the house. Well, after a little while, somebody comes back out with some tea and biscuits. And my friend and I just sit there in the tent by ourselves, drinking our tea, and eating our biscuits, and we never saw the guy again. And I was like, talking to my friend, like, what is going on here? He said, no, this is, this is the way hospitality works sometimes. It's an obligation. We needed to pay him a visit. He didn't really want to spend time with us, but he needs to provide tea and biscuits for us and a place for us to sit down and rest. But he wasn't even there to visit with us. Needless to say, that wasn't the best experience of hospitality that I've ever, I've ever had. But I had many others in Pakistan that were just amazing. I remember our first week there, we were invited over to the home of this family. And they invited all their friends and neighbors over and they laid out this carpet, um, this huge carpet on their like front, front room floor. And they filled the carpet with tons of dishes, all these different kinds of food, fresh breads and rice and sauces and meats and um, place settings for everybody. And we all just sat on the floor all around this big carpet. And there were people standing and people in the other room. And we were just eating and eating. And every time they were just, they were filling our cups. Do you want another soda? Do you want more water? Do you want some more tea? And here, have another plate of food and another plate of food and another plate of food. And I was just stuffed, but the room was full of so much energy too. We were just visiting and getting to know each other. And it was an awesome experience of being hosted. Well, maybe you've had an experience like that, where someone has taken excellent care of you. They've provided for all of your needs and maybe even some of your wants at the same time. And there's nothing like that when you've had that kind of experience. It's, it's relaxing. It's settling, it's comforting to know that you're in good hands and all you need to enjoy, all you need to do is enjoy the company that you're with. Well, whatever experience you may have had, it doesn't compare to the host with the most. It doesn't compare to God laying the spread, providing all the good things and caring, caring for your every need. We're looking today at the last two verses of Psalm 23 as we wrap up our series in the valley. Now, John has gone through the first two or the first four verses already where we've seen that the psalmist is saying that Yahweh is his shepherd, the one who makes him lie down in green pastures and takes him by the quiet waters. He renews and refreshes 
his life and guides him on the paths of righteousness. Yahweh's rod and staff, they comfort the psalmist as he goes through the darkest valley. We saw that we lack nothing when Jesus is our shepherd and that it is only Jesus that gives us rest for our restless souls. Now, in the final two verses, there's a big, big change here. It shifts away from that sheep and shepherding Im imagery. Now, you've probably already noticed that if you've taken John up on his challenge to memorize Psalm 23. And if you have taken him up on that, we would love to have you record yourself reciting the psalm and then sending that in to info at newhopepdx.org. There's also more instructions on that on our website for you to check out. But for right now, let's watch Harriet Sparrows, one of our longtime New Hopers, sign Psalm 23 for us. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thanks, Harriet. Let's take a look at the last two verses of the psalm. It says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Notice the change in who's being addressed. For the first four verses, David's been describing who Yahweh is. Now it gets even more personal as he talks directly to Yahweh. He says, you set the table. But the big shift happens in the whole imagery and the metaphor. It goes away from the sheep and the shepherd and now it's going to where there's a meal. I wonder if there were lamb served at the meal. I don't know. And there's oil and there's wine and there's a host 
And this is the host with the most. You can't top him. He will outhost anybody. It's Yahweh. It's Yahweh setting the table. Psalm 23 isn't the only place in Scripture where it has this idea of God setting a table for somebody else. In fact, it's not even the only place in the Psalms. Psalm 78 kind of marks off some big blocks in Israel's history, including when God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And as they were coming out of Egypt, they questioned God. And in verse 19 of Psalm 78, it says, they spoke against God. They said, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? Oh, yeah. God can spread a table. He took care of them for 40 years. He gave them water and quail and manna. They lacked nothing. In Psalm 23, David is expressing a time of walking in the darkest valley. It kind of sounds like a wilderness place. It kind of seems like a place like the, the Israelites walking with God through the wilderness as God took them out of Egypt. Can God set a table in the wilderness? Yeah, he's done it before, and he's doing it in Psalm 23 in an extravagant way. David isn't just surviving the darkest valley. He's being brought out of it into a place of feasting and celebration. The host anoints his guest with oil. Picture a dry, dusty place that produces dry and dusty skin. And the oil being rubbed on, it's dry, it's the dryness of the skin being quenched. The guest giving a luxury for their comfort. Maybe this makes you think of Jesus as he was eating with one of the Pharisees and a woman who was described as a sinful woman came in and she was weeping and she washed Jesus' feet with her tears. And then she kissed his feet and then dried his feet with her hair and then poured expensive perfume on his feet. And Jesus said to the Pharisee, you did not put oil on my head, as was the custom, but she has per poured perfume on my feet. Well, in Psalm 23, the guest is cared for with oil upon his head and his cup overflows. Now I'm going to offend some of your sensibilities here a little bit because that word for overflows in the Hebrew has the idea of drinking to the point of intoxication and the Greek translation even more so. Now, I'm not condoning it. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. In all seriousness though, I'm really, I'm not condoning drinking heavily and I know that for some of you watching, you really shouldn't drink at all. And so this is not an encouragement to do so. But the picture here is of the host filling the wine glass every time it gets low. He's not holding back. They're not going to run out of wine. So you put all that together. You've got the table that's been prepared. You've got the anointing with the oil. You've got the wine overflowing in the cup. And it's this image not just of a great meal and a good host, but it's a victory feast. It's coming through the valley of shadow death, like John called it last week, where there's evil and overcoming the enemy. 
The enemy is no longer in pursuit. Instead, it's goodness and love, tov and chesed, two words, two Hebrew words that you've heard us talk about before that are following David. There's a little wordplay here too, because the word for follow is used several times in the Psalms, but it's usually translated pursue or even persecute. And it's almost always used in a negative way. Um, The psalmist's enemies are pursuing him with violence. But here in Psalm 23, it's Yahweh who is aggressively pursuing David with tov and chesed, with goodness and love. Tov is the word that's used from the very first chapter of the Bible to describe how God creates everything. He creates it tov or good. It comes right from his character, from his being. Chesed, you've probably heard about before as well. It's that word for God's faithful covenant love. It is a specific committed love. David had many enemies pursue him, but more importantly, he had the Lord's goodness and love, his tov and his chesed pursuing him. Now, the final line of the psalm returns to a theme that we've seen throughout the psalm already, being in the presence of God. It says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, if you remember last week, John mentioned that in verse 3, where it says, the NIV says, he refreshes my soul, a better translation might be, he brings me back to life. Because that word for refreshes is actually the word for return. It's shuv. Well, it's the same word here in the last verse for dwell. So an alternate translation might be, and I will return to the house of the Lord forever or all the days of my life. He's been wandering through the valley and Yahweh has been with him the whole time. But now that he has victory over his enemies, he will return to the house of the Lord. He will take his rightful place. Now, all that sounds good to me. I mean, at least it sounds good for David. There's something going on here, though, that we need to explore by backing up a little bit and seeing the bigger context. More than just Psalm 23 and really even more than the Psalms, but seeing the whole story of what's happening in the Bible. So let's do a little bit of theology here, okay? Theology is good for us. Helps us to understand who God is and how he relates to us. So let me ask you this question. How are the Psalms the word of God? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, these are the prayers of David and others, right? So how does a person's prayer become the word of God? Last week, Dietrich, uh, John mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer asked this same question many years ago. And the answer that he gave was that these are the prayers of Jesus. He said, if we want to read and to pray the prayers of the Bible, and especially the Psalms, we must not ask first what they have to do with us, but what they have to do with Jesus Christ. Now, maybe there's more to the Psalms than just a collection of individual prayers and poems. There's a clue to this in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, which kind of tells the story of the church as it's growing after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, starting with the apostles, 
the apostles and some other followers were hiding in a room in Jerusalem, waiting for the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came down upon them, it came down on them in power, and it gave them the ability to talk in all these different languages so that they could tell all the people in the city about Jesus. Well, Peter, early on in the story, is talking to a large crowd, and he's telling them who Jesus is. And as part of his speech, he quotes from Psalm 16. He says that David says regarding Jesus in Psalm 16, that you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. That's Peter quoting Psalm 16. Then Peter goes on with his speech. He says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. Did you catch what's happening here? David is more than a shepherd. David is more than a king. David was a prophet. And what he wrote in the Psalms, he wrote about the Messiah, about Jesus. Now, somehow it related to his own life as well, but the purpose related to the Messiah who is going to come from his line. Now, it's not just Peter who is pointing this out. All of the writers of the New Testament wrote, uh, thought this way as well. The book of Psalms is quoted in the New Testament more than any other book in the Old Testament. By my count, it's about 90 times of clear quotes or allusions to the Psalms in the New Testament. Other scholars come up with a number closer to like 300 or more. But in a vast majority, here's the interesting part, in a vast majority of those quotes and allusions, they're being used to show that Jesus is the Messiah, or they're being used to teach something about Jesus. Now, what we can't do today is kind of get into how all of the Psalms are connected and how together they form a whole thing. They aren't just loosely connected, but they are very intentionally placed in order to communicate a message. And that message of the Psalms is that God is going to send a king to reign over all the earth. But first, he's going to suffer. The king is going to go through the valley of the shadow of death, but he will emerge from that victorious. He will be brought back to life and he will return to the house of the Lord. I remember when I was first learning to read the Psalms in this way uh, when I was in college. And, you know, I got to be honest with you, like the Psalms prior to that never really interested me too much. This is just my own personal experience, but I just couldn't connect um, with their significance. They always seemed like, you know, they were highly metaphorical. Um, I didn't understand how they related to everything else. They were repetitive and they were a bit too personal. And other than a couple of uh, my favorite Psalms I had, I just always felt lost whenever I was reading the Psalms. But when I began to see how they were formed into something bigger, 
And when I began to see Jesus in the Psalms, it was like they came alive and they quickly became my favorite book of the Bible to study. I frequently say that if I were to ever go on for a PhD, I'm going to do my dissertation, something on the, on the Psalms. All right, so let's get back to Psalm 23. With all that information, how does Psalm 23 relate to us? If Psalm 23 is about Jesus, who's hosting me? Where's my lamb kebab? I think the primary answer to this lies in a concept and a phrase that appears in the New Testament hundreds of times. Here's an example from 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new, uh, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. To be in Christ means that we've identified ourselves with Jesus. We've turned away from the old way of humanity that identifies itself with Adam and that always turned away from God. And instead, we identify ourselves with the new humanity of Jesus. The new creation has come. The old is gone. Look, the new is here. Now, this idea of being in Christ means that we actually share in who Christ is. As God views Jesus, so he views us when we are in Christ. What is true of him in his humanity becomes true of us. All of the blessings and the benefits that are poured out on Jesus are poured out on us in Christ. I tried to think of some illustration for this. And I got to tell you, none of them seem to quite hit the significance of the, of the meaning of this. The closest one is a good biblical illustration, which is adoption. You know, when a child is adopted and brought into a family where they take on a new name and a new identity, and what happens with that family now happens with that child. And all of the benefits and blessings that that family has now falls on that child as well. So in Psalm 23, Jesus, the Messiah, is hosted by God. He's given a lavish victory banquet, but it's also a promise to us. In Jesus, we are hosted by God. The victory that Jesus had is shared with us, and the banquet is shared with us as well. Jesus said, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. You may not feel like you've been hosted by God, but you will. We will all be hosted by God at his table in Jesus. One of the best passages for kind of seeing this idea of that blessing in Christ is from Ephesians. The first chapter of Ephesians has that idea of in Christ, or it says in him 13 times. And the letter opens up this way. It says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. That is, he makes us holy and blameless. He predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace 
that he lavished on us in the beloved one. When I was a relatively new Christian, this passage became really meaningful to me. I mean, I was growing in my knowledge, my understanding, my relationship with God, but I often questioned God's love. Like I, I knew that God loved people, but not me, right? Like why would, why would he love me? But it was in reading this passage in Ephesians that something finally clicked in my head and in my heart. God loves us so much. It was worth it, worth it so much that he sent his son, Jesus. And regardless of how lovable or not I feel, when I identify myself with Jesus, all of the love and goodness the Father has for Jesus, he has for me as well, and he has for you. Jesus said, as he prayed to the Father, you have loved them just as you have loved me. When we see ourselves in Christ, receiving what Christ receives from the Father, one of the things that I hope that we can come away with in Psalm 23 is to have confidence in God's goodness and love. John mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Psalm 23 is a psalm of confidence. It's a psalm expressing trust in who God is and that he cares for us, cares for us. And just as God's goodness and love pursued David and pursued the Messiah, it pursues us as well in Christ. And in fact, seeing Jesus in Psalm 23 actually demonstrates this because Jesus walked through the valley of shadow death, the darkest valley, so that we could have life in him. That's God's goodness and love pursuing us. Now remember, a big theme in, in this psalm is that God is with us. He's with us in green pastures. He's with us in the darkest valley. He's with us as he hosts us lavishly. Dallas Willard said in regard to Psalm 23, our challenge is to stay with him in the increasing belief that God truly desires to be with us. Do you believe that? Do you have confidence in that, that God wants to be with you? He's pursuing you with his goodness and love. A lot of us might need a reminder about that right now. You know, as this pandemic goes on, we just passed the eight, eighth month mark of since kind of lockdowns happened here in Oregon, and now restrictions are even tighter currently. The studies are showing that in this period of time, anxiety and depression are increasing. Loneliness and isolation are increasing relational tensions within households is going up and addictions are increasing as well. Now, just as much as ever, we need to remember that God is pursuing us with his goodness and his faithful, committed love. Now, who around you needs to know that as well? Who needs to know that Jesus has gone before them in their struggle and wants to be with them in the midst of it. 
Bonhoeffer wrote, it is the incarnate Son of God who has borne every human weakness in his own flesh, who, who here pours out the heart of all humanity before God and who stands in our place and prays for us. He has known torment and pain, guilt and death more deeply than we. Therefore, it is the prayer of the human nature assumed by him which comes here before God. It is really our prayer, but since he knows us better than we know ourselves, and since he himself was true man for our sakes, it is also really his prayer, and it can become our prayer only because it was his prayer. He has gone before us, and he wants to be with us in the midst of this. Now this brings us to the final thing for us to see today. When we see Jesus in the Psalms, when we understand that God wants to host us in Christ, and that Christ has gone before us in victory, we see something bigger than ourselves. We're a part of something bigger, something more important. And I'm not saying that you're not important. You are. That's why Jesus died for you. But there's something happening here that's bigger than us. It really actually helps us to understand the enemies mentioned in verse 5. Remember, the table is prepared in front of these enemies. Well, I think if I, if I view um, Psalm 23 as primarily about me, I might be tempted to envision God preparing a table before my unkind neighbor who sees the world a lot differently than I do. I don't think God's going to validate our choice of enemies. We have too many enemies in our society right now. When we're part of a bigger story, though, we see that that enemy is one that only Jesus can defeat. And it's one that he already has defeated. When we put our attention on Jesus, when we think more about who he is and what he's inviting us into, we become a part of the story of God reconciling the whole world to himself. We become heirs of the kingdom of God where we will feast with Jesus at the table of God. We have security in knowing that we will be with God forever because he wants to be with us. Our lives become a part of his life and all of his life becomes ours. Paul wrote in his letter to the Colossians, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Our shepherd will see it done. He will bring us to the place where the table is set, where the oil is ready, where the cup is full of wine, and the company that we get to enjoy and praise is the almighty God who is full of goodness and love.
Please join me in prayer. Our loving Father, you are full of goodness and love. Help us to trust that, to trust that you really do want to be with us, that you are shepherding us in Jesus, that you've laid out a table for us, that you've welcomed us to this victory feast, that the enemy has been defeated, and now we get to enjoy your company. We look to you, we praise you, and we love you. Amen.